Are the holidays not what you pictured? Is it crazy, unmanageable, an absolute dumpster fire of shattered expectations? Then Magistar has you covered. Magistar is a gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan-friendly, gelatinous miracle. Christmas comes with so many expectations. Wouldn't it be great if they were instantly fixed? Magistar makes Christmas magical again. Side effects include lowered expectations, masked feelings, suppressed rage, and something called the zoomies. Magistar. It won't fix everything, but that won't matter. Oh, that is, that is just the tip of the iceberg of some of the fun we're going to have this season. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, I have no space for notes up here because Christmas is getting in the way. How, how much would you pay for Magistar? Any parents out there? A hundred bucks? One month supply? I don't know. My parents would have given anything for me as a kid to have something like that to keep me in line. You know, we all are trying to find something that will help us have the perfect Christmas season, the perfect experience of Christmas. Uh, it's a, if it were only as simple just to lay hold of something that would help us have peace and purpose and family and traditions to experience Here's how it was for me growing up. Harmony and Huga. Does anybody know what Huga is? A couple of you Scandinavian, probably Norwegians, you know what Huga is. For the rest of you uninitiated, uninformed, never really celebrated Christmas until you know about Huga people, uh, it's, it's this idea, it's the Scandinavian idea of comfort. It's a sweater by the fire. It's a good book. It's a cup of hot chocolate. It's, it's about conviviality, about being together and experiencing life. It's about that warm feeling that Christmas provides. Christmas for my family, uh, we, per we pursued this type of good feelings that making the most of the holidays together by a lot of our traditions. We had many of the traditions that maybe you have. You'd go uh, ice skating and drink hot chocolate. You would decorate a Christmas tree. Uh, you, you might um, smoke some brisket in honor of Jesus' birth. Am I right? Uh, you would go drive around and look at the Christmas displays in the neighborhood. But for my family growing up, one of the ways that we tried to experience this like peace on earth, goodwill towards men, sort of sense of comfort at Christmas time, it wasn't really Christmas until one of these made an appearance. How many of you grew up in a household where you got one of these? How many of you have one of these? That's great. I'm going to destroy this in a moment. So I'm sorry that you have one. I love you. I want to see all the pictures of yours. You can put them on Instagram later. But um, growing up as a kid, we, it wasn't Christmas until we had one of these out. This is a nativity scene. I found out uh, this week as I was studying nativity scenes, this is the 800th anniversary of the nativity scene. It started in 1223. Isn't that crazy? 800 years. People have been doing this, making little models and replicas of the night that Jesus was born. And of course, we've got, you know, some elements that are the same across all nativity scenes. They're, they're very simple. They're very basic. You've got, <clears throat> you've got this guy. Who, what is this guy? I'll give you a hint. 
He's got a sheep in his hands. Shepherd. Don't be shy. You guys got it. That's right. Um, we got this person. Who's this? Mother Mary. Who's this? Baby Jesus. Six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus. Looks like a shepherd, but that's Joseph, everybody. We all good with that being Joseph? Yep, yep. And then what's wrong with this guy? He's missing his buddies. They're supposed to be a wise man. How many wise men? Three is the traditional answer. The real answer is nobody knows. But we have three because they had gifts. They had three gifts. We think that this is, you know, three, three wise men. What is this scene missing? Maybe angels, maybe snow, I don't know. A donkey, an oxen. How about this? A star, a star. How are we feeling about this nativity scene? We good? We cover all the bases? We got, we got the story in one set. And this is designed for us in one picture to tell us this is what happened the night that Jesus was born. The, the problem with this is that um, as I was growing up, setting up all of these ancient characters in this ancient scene, nothing that I saw in my neighborhood, nothing that I experienced at my church, None of it had anything to do with shepherds or wise men or kids who were born outside of a hospital. Every, everything about this felt so irrelevant to my everyday life. And I wondered if this is what Christmas is, I've really been doing it wrong this whole time. And there's a couple problems here. Pardon me, Christmas time is when I as a pastor like to get all of my, you know, uh, anxieties out and covered. I like to shoot all of the bad information that we have. Um, can we all agree that this is factually wrong? This is not actually how it happened. For, for, for one thing, I mean, we, we imagine that this is how it went down. Our minds are covered in this, this moment of silence and stillness and wonder and awe. But not everybody's represented in this. Actually, eight days after this happened, there was a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna who had a very important part in the, the, the blessing of this child. They're nowhere to be found. Have you ever put your Anna and your Simeon characters in your nativity scene? No. Eight days afterwards, they, they missed the cut somehow, weren't, weren't a part of the scene. But most egregiously, these guys, these guys came 18 months after Jesus was born. They never laid eyes on little baby Jesus. They had eyes on toddler Jesus. And I just think it's really important for you to have a Merry Christmas by knowing that this year, okay? <laughs> so much angst about this. I'm going to remove just this so I can talk to you this morning. I think for all of its faults and maybe its historic inaccuracies, the beauty of the nativity scene is that it does one thing incredibly well for us. It highlights us for us what it is to actually come to Christmas in a way that provides more than good feelings, more than festivities. It shows us that this entire scene is centered around one main character, the baby who was born king of the world. I think that if we were to trace over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do this, we're going to trace the backstory of some of these characters we're going to learn that while this situation may be culturally distant from your and I's world, the situations that each one of these characters found themselves in leading up to this apparent moment is actually way more relatable to our everyday lives. It has more to do with our approaching Christmas this year too. And if you and I want to find a, a Christmas season and actually a life that is 
filled with purpose and wonder and awe. It doesn't come from how we celebrate. It comes from who we celebrate. It comes not from our feelings, but it comes from our worship. And today I want to take these guys, these misfits in the nativity scene. I want to tell you the story of what Matthew calls the magi. They're one C short of a magic trick, these guys. Um, that was a great joke, but nobody got it. That's fine. It's fine. The first story is, is the Magi, wise men from the east. And the nativity scene, these are the ones who come with camels and they're bringing gifts. We know them for the gifts, but I want you just to put that out of your mind for a moment because I think their story is an epic tale of how God reaches down to those who are searching for him and helps their faith become sight. These, these guys represent for us what is possible in our lives when we seek after the king. I think one of the reasons that we've included these guys at the nativity is because in Matthew's telling of the birth of Jesus, there is no lengthy description of the night that Jesus was born. In fact, Matthew chapter 1 ends with this verse that, that she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. If you've ever had friends who have had a child and you go over and you ask them, how was the delivery the way that a, a woman tells the story of a delivery is very different than the way that a man tells the story of a delivery. I would like to submit that maybe Matthew is Joseph's version and Luke is Mary's version. Because in Luke, we get all these details about there being no accommodations and it being late after a long journey and it being absolutely awful. In Matthew, we literally have this as the birth of Jesus. I gave him the name Jesus, period. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 moves on. We're dropped into a totally different setting. Listen to how Matthew shares the story. You know this. I'm not going to put it on a screen. I just want to tell you the story today. It says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Matthew doesn't leave us in the manger scene, all of us together. In fact, he doesn't have shepherds. He doesn't have a stable. He doesn't have Mary pondering everything in her heart. He just jumps right to a new location. Five miles to the north of Bethlehem was the capital city of Jerusalem. And in the capital city of Jerusalem, Matthew puts us about 18 months after the fact, magi from the east have come to Jerusalem in search of the baby. Do you know that Christmas song, uh, We Three Kings? No. Some of you do. We Three Kings of Orient are uh, bearing gifts. We traverse afar. No one knows the words. It's fine. Totally wrong. Three? No. The earliest tradition actually says that these guys, there was 12. Um, we have no reason to know why they said 12. But there was a, a, a tradition, earliest tradition, says that there was 12 magi that came from the east. Uh, later, about 600 years after that tradition was started, in about the 1800s, the church decided that we wanted to be a little bit more specific about who these people were. We were so curious that we actually whittled down the 12 and just went to three because of the three gifts. We actually gave these guys names and we ascribe to them different lengths of facial hair. This is how crazy Christians can get sometimes. 
One of them was really old and had a long beard. One of them uh, did no shave November and had stubble. And then one of them was too young to even grow a beard. That's what the church tradition says about these three wise men. But actually, if we look at the historic context for who the Magi were, we know a little bit something about them. The Magi were actually a ruling class of priests in the empire of Persia. They had a connection in the Bible with like the minor prophets, especially Daniel. If you know the story of Daniel in the captivity in Babylonian exile, it would have been those people that Daniel would have shared about God's promises to Israel to. The Magi came from that lineage and they served the king of Persia. They were uh, the PhD types of the Persian empire. They were religious holy men who had influence with the king. They were uh, sort of a think tank as it were. And they were hired by the king to do astrology, to look up at the stars and to understand the intricacies of the heavens and then to make sense of the times. And this is really important and it's actually not all even that interesting because everybody back in this day was an astrologer. Everybody back in this time was someone who looked at the stars and knew the patterns of the heavens. But every once in a while, if you've ever looked at the stars, you've ever seen a shooting star, a new star appears, there's this inbreaking of, of what is the regular unvarying rhythms of the stars as it moves through the seasons where something new would happen. The whole world would freak out. And the king would call a certain group of people whose job it was to interpret the stars and to make sense of the new phenomenon. The magi were paid to be able to explain what God was doing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Christmas is an interesting time to think about this. But you and I are a relatively new breed of human. It's only in the past 170 years, perhaps, that people like you and me have lost our sense of wonder at the heavens. Back then, the stars were used for everything. The stars would be primarily at nighttime a guiding light by which that navigation would take place. Today, we have Garmin that sends stars up into the sky to navigate us on our phones. But back then, everybody knew how to use the stars to get from place to place because the stars were reliable. The stars were predictable. People memorized the patterns of the nighttime sky. Back then, the, the, the dramatic episodes of culture played out in the stars. If you've ever read Greek, um, uh, the, the Greek pantheon of gods and some of Greek mysticism, it, it all revolves around the stars and the meaning of the stars and, and the constellations and the constellations represented gods who were often warring with one another or attracted to one another. You and I today have streaming devices that play out all of our cultural dramas. Um, if, if, if we were living with a, a first century attitude today, you and I would be getting all of our dramatic views from the stars. We would say, hey, look, there's Travis Kelsey and there's Taylor and look, they're shooting towards each other. That's how it would go for us. You get what I'm saying? The stars, they, they were navigational tools. They were the, the drama of the day, but they were, they were also the way in which you would know what God was up to. <laughs> I don't know about you, but my life, I don't see a lot of stars. In fact, the modern day, uh, you know, industrial revolution has brought about so much electrical advances and, and whatnot that um, the, the, the light pollution here is so bad. 
that if you want to see stars, you got to like go to a different state. Just a couple weeks ago, my family went to Arkansas. We went to the, the Buffalo National River. We found out while we were down there that it's one of the top five places in the country to see stars. We didn't know this until we were actually there setting up our camp under the starlight. And my kids looked up and they go, holy cow, dad, look. It's like they had, it had discovered stars for the first, like they were the first humans to realize there was this whole world above us. They're like, oh my goodness. And I was like, whoa. And I pulled out my phone, I put it on night mode, and I tried real hard to take a picture of the stars. That's how like not, you know, for living in a state where the motto is ad astra, which means to the stars, we don't really see stars that much, do we? Stars are not a part of our rhythms of life. But not for these guys. Not for everyone living in this time. The ancient world was so in tune with the patterns of the nighttime skies that everyone noticed when there was an interruption. It was common belief back then that because the skies were so predictable in their seasons and so able to be uh, calculated, it was believed that a person's fate was settled based upon which star they were born underneath. So every so often a star would burst forth onto the scene and People would say, oh, that star is a really new star or a special star. That must be a divine star. That must be a special thing that God is doing. That there was this inbreaking into the regular rhythms of life. The most logical interpretation was that God was breaking his own order and announcing something special. And this was a magi's job to notice the skies. And something about this star that they saw was so unique. It was so holy. It compelled them to follow it with eager curiosity. And I just want to pause there in the story because I think something about these guys coming from far away, taking a journey, noticing a star, moving towards it is really a lot like us. You know, you and I live today our ordered regular lives. There's a sense of rhythm to the world that we live in. We don't measure our world by the stars, but don't we tend to measure our world by our calendar? which season we find ourselves in. This today for many of us is the first thing that we've thought about for Christmas in the season, but it's appropriate because every year we have this Advent season where the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we talk about the birth of Jesus. And so this is for you, just another repetition around the great calendar of our lives. But in the routine and the order and the monotony, isn't it true that there is a treadmill effect that starts to happen where we wonder, is God ever gonna break into this vicious cycle of what we're walking through? You flip enough calendar pages and you start to imagine that there's got to be more to life than this. And we end up looking for signs. We end up looking for God breaking into our everyday life and to break up the monotony, to show us that he's doing something, to show us that he cares. I actually think if you're someone who is seeking God, you're more like a magi than maybe you ever thought possible. And sometimes people tell me, that when they weren't looking for God, God found them. That's a really beautiful thing that happens. But my experience as a pastor has actually been talking to you many times. I hear more the statement, I'm looking for God these days. It happened to me yesterday. I was talking to a woman here. We were had, had a funeral in our, in, our, in our church yesterday and 
participated in it. And I walked in and there was a woman there and she said, I need to talk to you because I think these days I'm looking for God and I want to find him. More often, we are like the magi who search and say, God, where are you? What are you up to? Can you give me a sign? They're earnestly convinced that God acts in this world. And here's what I want to point out about these guys is that while, while everybody would have seen the star, only the magi did something about it. Only the magi had the, the guts to actually say, that's got to be something special. and We got to find out what's behind that star. They moved and followed it. And this is what a seeker does. The seeker just follows the evidence one step at a time. They packed up their vehicles. They, they left their jobs for a while. They ventured out to start a journey of exploration. And they got to the city of Jerusalem. They asked the question, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And it set off distress in the city of Jerusalem. This is kind of why I believe there's more than three Magi. It's because three people showing up in the streets of Jerusalem going, where's the newborn king of the, of the Jews? That's called a cult. You look at that and you go, oh, these three crazy people. Even if there's 12, you're like, well, this whole family. But I think more like with church tradition, there was like 70 of these people who all caravaned together. And they showed up dressed in their robes. And if you've got a whole entire platoon of people who show up in your city from a faraway place, Typically, you would think we're being invaded. They brought with them gifts. They looked more like merchants who were trying to trade. They were showing up in peace, it seemed like. And they came into Jerusalem and they said, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? I bet they expected to go to the palace. I bet they thought, well, wow, maybe Herod has had a child and the whole town was nervous, Matthew tells us. And the reason they were nervous is because Herod hadn't had any children. Not for a long time. In fact, three decades before this, Herod had his own wife assassinated because he was nervous that she was going to succeed him to the throne. A couple of years after that, Herod had his own sons, adult sons, put to death because he was suspicious of them trying to rebel against him and take his power. Herod had actually married eight more times throughout uh, the years, and every single time it did not end well for the bride. We can just say it that way. The Magi may not have known this, but they walked into the devil's den, as it were, the, 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 the lair of the snake. And they asked the most horrific question that anyone in Jerusalem could ever ask, where is the one who is next in line to the throne? And the person whose ears were caught most by that question was the actual guy who was on the throne. Ironically, a guy named Herod the Great. And Herod does what only a king would do. He gathers together his priests and he says, Hey, tell me about you guys' religion. What do you say about the next in line that is going to be coming? Where is he going to be born? And the priests of the Jews, they gather together and say, Well, that's really easy. We tried to tell you this many times, but now you seem to be interested. That's great. Micah 5.2 says this. It says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means are you the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod, armed with this knowledge, does something incredibly crafty. He, he brings the magi to himself in a secret closed door meeting. And he summons them and he tries to trick them into getting more intel. He says to them, I'm so glad you guys are here because I share in your mission's purpose to also pay homage and respect to the one who will now rule over Israel after I'm gone. 
And I think, you know, the Jewish scriptures say that Bethlehem is the place where this next in line ruler is going to be born. So I think you ought to start your search there. Five miles down the road, you can go. It's just a day's journey. And if you don't mind, you could just save me a little bit of time. Once you find the child, would you send word back so that I too may kill him? I mean, honor him. And the Magi, armed with the word of God, they take steps. Bethlehem was five miles south of Jerusalem. It still is five miles south of Jerusalem. And so you would go down the hill that Jerusalem is upon, go down into a a plain area, and then it's a steep ascent. It's 3,500 feet up. And Bethlehem kind of sits nestled at the top of like a saddle-type situation in the mountains. The Magi could have easily made this trip in a few hours. Once they started off, the star appeared in the sky once more and guided them to a certain home, and there it came to rest. As the Magi came to the house, Matthew tells us that they were overjoyed. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed, verse 10 tells us. Now, I think this is incredible. They followed the star, and they followed him on this journey. They got this intel from Herod, of all people, about what God had said from Micah the prophet, and it led them right to this home where the star came to rest right above the house, and they were overjoyed. It reminds me of that scene in The Goonies right before the kids are about to get One-Eyed Willie's treasure. You know what I mean? Like, they were just like, it's real, it's real. We can't believe it's real. They were just overjoyed. Their wonder about what the star meant had led them on a quest that birthed inside of them joy. They knocked on the door, and inside the home, They saw, Matthew tells us, first he lists the child, then he lists the mother. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. Inside the home, in the presence of the one they suspected was real, they bowed their knees and worshipped him. And in doing so, in bowing their knees, they paid homage to the king of the world. Their wonder at the star gave way to joy in their hearts and their joy made space in their lives for worship. Worship simply just means honoring. They worshiped the newborn king with gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Now I just want to pause and say these are curious gifts for a toddler. I don't know if any of your kids this year, you ask them what do you want for Christmas, if any of them are going to list gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If you do have kids that ask for gold, frankincense, and myrrh, you might want to read them more than just the Bible. Okay, just, I love that your kids are growing up in the faith, but like help them have a wider, like have them ask for a PlayStation. You know what I mean? When my daughter was a toddler, she was given curious gifts from doting grandparents. My mom was so thrilled to have a grandchild that she bought her the most impractical gifts ever. I think there's like a Swarkovsky crystal piano that my mom gave our daughter. She was eight months old. And we were like, yeah, we're going to hold on to that till she's older. And someone gave our kids money. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't hold the money. They're going to eat that. We'll hold on to it. I remember when I was like two years old, a, a crazy kooky old guy in my church actually gave me a pocket knife once for Christmas. And my dad was like, whoa, 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 sport. And we're not yet. Not yet. There are some gifts that are just really impractical for babies. And I don't care what happened to the gifts. I'm sure that they blessed Mary and Joseph along the journey that was to happen to them. But it's the spirit of these gifts that we focus in on. The gold, it represents the royalty of this baby. This is a gift that you give to a king. 
Frankincense. This was a special spice that was offered to God by the priests. It was a sign that this baby was divine. And myrrh. Myrrh was a very desirable spice from the east. Some historians suggest that myrrh was more costly than gold because of all the processing and the shipping that it required. And, and I'll share more about what the myrrh represents in a moment. But what we can see is that the Magi worshipped Jesus with the finest gifts. Some other day I'm going to do um, a message called The Economics of Incarnation. What it means that the king has come and the gifts that we offer. But that's a topic for another day. I'm sure for these Magi, as they presented the most precious of what they owned, the king that they were worshiping, they believed that God was up to something and that something was for them. The Magi fully worshiped. And this is why we've, even though they're a year or two after the scene, we actually include them with everybody else. It's because their contribution to the story of the star of Christmas shows us something incredible for all of us to take hold, which is good news for you and for me. Us who don't live in Bethlehem, us who don't come from primarily Jewish descent. The, the fact that strangers from a foreign land were given a sign by God at the birth of his son and they traveled and they saw him and they knocked on the door and they found him. It suggests to us that this child who was born king of the Jews is actually king of the world and anyone who has a heart to seek him can find him. This is what these guys show us today. This is what he shows us who seek God today is that it's possible for those who are seeking the king to find him. In fact, these are the words that the baby would grow up and say in the coming years, he would say, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He would say, come and see, come follow me. The nations showed up to worship the baby before the baby had done anything significant to be worthy. Despite coming from a different country, the hope of humanity rests where the world is welcomed, which is at the feet of King Jesus. The Magi's journey proved that God was up to way more than just installing a king of the Jews. That they weren't just sent to bring gifts from Persia to this Jewish king as some sort of peace treaty. In fact, coming from Persia and not giving gifts to Herod would have cost them politically more than giving their gifts to this baby. That's another day that's called the politics of incarnation. They actually saw the blessing that God was blessing them. Showing them that he so loved the world that whoever believe should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. They sought, they asked, they knocked, they found, and their faith became sight. Here's where I want to land this for you and for me today. Have you ever asked God for a sign? Have you ever asked God to prove to you that this is real, that he's out there, that he's working, that he's alive? Statistics tell us that uh, something like 70% of Americans ask God to reveal himself to them in a regular rhythm of their life. 42% uh, of Americans claim that they've had some sort of religious experience that is supernaturally driven in the past six months. 
We are a, a people who are desperately seeking transcendence, the divine breaking into our lives. If you've ever asked God for a sign, the magi are your comfort. Because if the story tells us anything, it's that God has his way of catching our attention. The question is, not will you notice, but what will you do with the sign that he shows you? Will you follow where God leads you? You say, well, how do I know if something is a sign from God or just my imagination? How do I know if, you know, that, that dream that I had is something that God is leading me into? How do I know if I got a sign because a guy on 35 cut me off with his car and he had a Jesus sticker on the back of it? That's not a sign. That's just a bad driver, by the way. Don't put a Jesus sticker on your car if you're going to be a bad driver. Another day. It's called the kindness of incarnation. How do I know it's a sign from God? And it's very simple. Very simple. There's one test. Does the sign lead you to the same place the Magi sign led them? Does the thing that God's shown you bring you to the feet of King Jesus? Are you drawn more in love with the God, the, the God who came into this world? Or are you distracted by different histories and myths and traditions? Does the thing that God's shown you point to his son or does it point to something else? The signs that God has given us today. I think you guys know how I feel about this book. I think I know how you feel about this book. This is a miraculous sign from God that we have the words of God so perfectly preserved for us thousands of years after they were written, which are still contemporary enough to feel like they were written for today. It's a sign from God and it points us to the King, Jesus. The Spirit of God always points us to Jesus, the King. They will always lead us to the same place the Magi arrived, to the feet of God's Son. And in believing in God's Son as the King of your life, we have peace and hope and love. And all the Scandinavians said, and Huga conviviality, comfort, contentment, peace on earth. I think you're here today because you want to find God. I think you're curious about this life and what God is up to, and I hope it brings you joy to know that you're not far. You're not far at all. God has drawn us and allowed us to come into his home to see his son. And if we make the star of Christmas this year, this baby who is born for us, We'll have a Christmas that is truly merry and bright, full of comfort, peace, and hope. That's what the series, The Star of Christmas, is all about. How do we keep Jesus center stage? In a moment, I'm going to give us just one activity for us to do to help us celebrate Jesus the King. When Jesus died, he left another symbol and sign for us to worship him. It's what we call communion. Communion helps us remember that Jesus, this child, lived with a purpose. It was to die. He didn't just come to come. He didn't live to live. But he had a mission to seek and to save those who were lost. You see, a few decades after this child was given myrrh by the Magi, he would be hanging on a cross, put up there by another leader of the Jewish people, with a sign over his head that taunted him saying, here is the king of the Jews. 
And a Roman soldier would dip a sponge on a spear into a mixture of wine that was mixed with myrrh. And they would lift up that spear to the mouth of Jesus and ask him, do you want a drink? You see, gold represents the royalty of a person and frankincense represents the divinity of Jesus. But myrrh, even from the days where he was presented myrrh, it represented the humanity of this child. That he was one sent to be a sacrifice who would die for us. The, the Magi may not have known all the implications of what giving myrrh to this child meant, but, but the moment that Jesus' body was broken down off of the cross, it was wrapped up by his friend Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph, being a wealthy man, put a hundred pounds of myrrh over Jesus' body to help anoint him for proper burial. Myrrh had so many connections to this baby and this grown Savior's life because he came as the one who would give his life to solve the need that you and I have for forgiveness of our sins. See, Jesus the King was sent from heaven. He came to give us life so that we could be forgiven. And when Jesus talked to us right before he went to the cross, he said, I want to give you another sign. Another sign that you can remember me by for the rest of time. I want to give you bread and wine. I think we use grape juice another grape. Bread and wine. It's my body which is broken for you. It's my blood that is poured out for you. These are symbols and signs that will point the way to the fact that I didn't just come, but I came to die. And in eating this today, we, we proclaim that Jesus has done something for me. That what I'm seeking in this world isn't just an interruption in my life to some new supernatural experience, but it's an invitation to participate in a new way of life that by bringing in Jesus, I'm actually experiencing transformation. And so I want to invite us today as an act of obey, obeying and worshiping the King. The band's going to play. we got one song. It's about how Jesus is the point of it all. And I want to encourage you, if Jesus is your King, if you've accepted the fact that he's died for you, and we know that he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave. If that's your story, I want to invite you to come and take of the bread and the juice together. That we can worship this baby who was born king of the world, who lived to die. The royal God in human form. Him for me. If you're ready, you can come forward.